Go ahead and turn in your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. One of our hosts will provide one for you. We'd love for you to have a Bible. If you don't have one, that's a gift um, from us to you. And we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 4 in the final verses of our series in 2 Timothy called Gospel Legacy. You can find <clears throat> that passage on page 936 in those Bibles. And we've been in our entire time investigating what does it mean to be a healthy church? We're, this is Paul's last letter, and we're kind of receiving this from Timothy's side. We're receiving this as those that are being encouraged from Paul's last words of how do we maintain faith? How do we, how do we embrace this gospel legacy for ourselves as well? And as we think about what it means to be a healthy church, I would encourage you to pick up this book called What is a Healthy Church by Mark Dever at the Resource Center. This is a book I often recommend that helps um, communicate biblical principles for what churches should be looking for, should be striving after, that we might be healthy. We might look different based on uh, context of size and culture, but the, the Bible prescribes many things that we should be about for every local church, regardless as to setting. And I think this book helps set a good conversation as part of that. So I would encourage you to check that out. Each week in our, in, our, uh, in our services, we usually uh, have a sermon intro video like the one that you've seen today. And what we mean to do as part of that is to reinforce in an artistic way some biblical themes that are being communicated in our messages. And our communications team, uh, Randy Y.A. and Chad Kohler, do a phenomenal job of putting these videos together. Chad does the lion's share of, of, of the actual nuts and bolts of putting the video together. And I'm grateful for their work, and I think it helps uh, communicate in just a different way um, to us. But this is one of my favorite videos that we've had to introduce a sermon because it has historical real pictures from uh, our church's past, from past pastors, from our church family throughout uh, the decades of nearly 60 years of our existence. And several weeks ago, somebody in our congregation said to me, you know, Zach, you realize not everybody probably knows the names of the people who are part of that Video And it might be a good idea to, you know, to, to mention that to our church family. So I want to spend just a few minutes in the introduction this morning just introducing to you, for the, anyone who wouldn't know, um, the names of the people that we have been, um, that have been part of that video. The first one there is Marion Forrest. Marion Forrest. Our church was started in Marion's basement in 1964 down in Worthington. Him and his family moved here from the Dayton area, and they started a church. And uh, Marion was an instrumental leader in our church. He served as an elder the, his entire um, time here. He passed away in 2019 at the age of 96. 96. But Marion was an, a huge part of, of our church. The first pastor was Dave Hawking. Dave Hawking. He served for the first several years. He was well known as an evangelist, as a sound Bible teacher. I love that picture there because it has uh, Columbus that kind of outlined and he's pointing to where the church would be located. I'm sure he had visions for reaching the entire city. But he was a, an evangelist, a sound Bible teacher, and he also had started a radio ministry to help reach the area. He left after just a few years to go pastor his home church in Southern uh, California. <coughs> The next pastor was Jim Custer. Many of us would know Pastor Jim. He was the pastor for 40 years. And under his ministry, the church grew and experienced all kinds of, uh, of, of growth, of maturity. Many ministries were started, leaders raised up, and people were equipped to, to serve in various capacities in our church. Pastor Jim still is part of our church. He still teaches. He's on staff. And I'm grateful for his um, personal relationship with, with me as well. 
After him, the next pastor was Dave Plaster. You can see Plaster there with his wife, uh, Jenny. He became the pastor here in 2007 after a long career as a pastor, as a theology professor, and an academic administrator in uh, Winona Lake at Grace College and Seminary. Dave was in his late 50s when he became here. He was a, when he came here as the pastor, he was a mentor of mine. He actually, I started here as an intern in 2007 with Dave Plaster. But in his late 50s, he knew that he had a brief period of time to help transition the church to the next generation. But during his time, he was a stabilizing force and was a, a wise administrator and leader during at times a difficult season in our church. But he was only here two and a half years as he died unexpectedly after a sudden illness. After him, after a season then without a pastor, Mike Yoder became the lead pastor of our church, the fourth lead pastor in August of 2011. You see there as the elders are praying for him and Letitia. Mike is a gifted and strategic visionary leader, and he brought the necessary vision and direction to our church in a very needed time. He helped unite our church behind a common mission and values. He led us through important capital campaigns, building updates, and a renewed missional emphasis with a passion for the nations. It's now a privilege to be the sending church for Michael and Letitia as he takes the role as uh, the executive director of Encompass World Partners, and we're thrilled to have them as still part of our church as well. But all of those men, including myself, would recognize that the lead pastor plays a unique role in the health of a congregation, but not the only role in the health of a congregation. Represented in all of those men are other faithful pastors, associate pastors, elders, leaders, staff, members, men and women who have helped make this congregation into what it is today. Healthy churches are central to God's plan for the world. And healthy churches are led by healthy or godly elders, godly pastors for the sake of the gospel among the nations. But they also represent a congregation, a mature congregation, a congregation that desires to, to reach the nations as well. And it's a privilege to be part of such a legacy here at our church. And as we come to this conclusion of our series in 2 Timothy called Gospel Legacy, we're thinking about how do we continue to embrace the best of what has been modeled before us and how we continue to remain faithful to the task at hand so that we might leave that for the next generation as well. As Paul finishes this letter, his final letter, this swan song with personal encouragement and instructions that reveal his humanity and the depth of his relationships, we ask ourselves a final question. What makes us successful? What makes us successful? How do we measure the success of this legacy? How do we measure the success of our mission, the task that we have at hand. See, Paul set out with great goals and a magnificent mission. But how do we really know if he succeeded? How do we know if any of the previous pastors of our church have really been successful? See, there's still lots of people uh, that are lost in our city. There are still great needs in the midst of our area. There are still billions around the planet without even access to the gospel. There are hundreds of Christians, even in our own congregation, that remain unsanctified and fail to walk in holiness. How are we successful? 
What doesn't quite feel right to judge somebody's success by whether or not they saw all of their hopes and dreams fulfilled in their lifetime? Some of the most important priorities that we, that we strive for sh- tend to outlive us. Judging lasting success is extremely difficult because the results are not always immediate. But as you reflect on your life, by what criteria would you judge your success? And as we reflect on the health of our church, the legacy of our church, how should we judge our success? Our main idea that I want to advocate for today is that a successful life treasures what's most important. A successful life treasures what is most important. And in our final words from Paul that he ever wrote in his lifetime, I think we see these themes summarized. If you would, go ahead and stand and honor the reading of God's word as I read from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 22. <clears throat> Paul writes, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychius I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, I bring the cloak I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I, le- and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eububulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. This is God's word, and you may be seated. So in these final verses, there's a mix of encouragement and final instruction. This may seem disconnected. However, as we read Paul's words, we'll notice several important themes that help summarize this letter. And we're looking at three different criteria of a successful life. Three criteria for a successful life. And remember, a successful life treasures what's most important. And in these final words, we'll see what is most important to Paul. And as we receive this, For those who are called to maintain faithfulness and mission, these three criteria will help us treasure what is most important. First, a successful life is measured in relationships. A successful life is measured in relationships. In the first installment of this series, in the first couple of verses, we notice that the intimate relationship between Paul and Timothy in this discipleship relationship. Paul calls Timothy his beloved child in chapter 1, verse 2. And in one verse fall, he's reminded of Timothy's tears and how he longs to see him. In these final instructions, Paul says to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 9, do your best to come to me soon. And then in verse 21, he says, do your best to come to me before 
winner. He, then he even encourages Timothy to bring the cloak, this, this giant kind of overcoat with him uh, so that he might be comforted, so that he might be warmed. This dude is cold and lonely and he's looking for Timothy, his protege, this friend, this, his, his companion to come and encourage him. We see this human side of Paul. We often think of Paul as this ivory, uh, ivory tower theologian, this genius, and he's almost a robot in some sense because he's so intense in type A. But here in the latter days of Paul's life, he's asking for one of his best friends, his younger brother in the faith, come quickly. There's such a value in this relationship. And see, Paul mentions all these other names as part of this as well, because Paul had lived his life as an application of what he wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, which says, entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul had been doing that his entire life. He knew that he would be passing on the gospel, who would be able to take it to other people in places that he wouldn't go. And that included the future. He entrusted the gospel, he entrusted the word to faithful men who would be able to teach others also. He surrounded himself with young people who would outlast him. If we were to measure Paul's success through his relationships, it would be impossible to beat him. And he lists all of these names. And these names reveal several lessons for us that are good reminders as we think about relationships. Because assessing relationships can be quite challenging because it's not immediate. We have to play the long haul. But in these verses, we can, we can see some uh, lessons related to Paul's relationships. First, first lesson, not every discipleship relationship will turn out in the long run. Not every discipleship relationship will turn out in the long run. He mentions Demas. And he says, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. He's gone away. Demas is like that sea that's been sown, but it's choked up by the cares and the riches of this world. Demas is mentioned in Colossians chapter 4. And in Philemon verse 24, he's sending greetings at that time. He's a a co-laborer with Paul. He's he's there, but in Paul's latter days, as Paul is facing execution, Demas refuses to count the cost and to be identified with Paul. Earlier in chapter 1, when Paul writes to Timothy, do not be ashamed of the gospel, nor of me, his prisoner, Demas is both ashamed of the gospel and of Paul. He's unwilling to identify with him. Now, the phrase that he's in love with this world and and has deserted is a relatively vague phrase. We're not sure exactly if this is simply a mere lapse in faith or if this is a complete denial of the gospel. But we should not allow the vagueness of of the phrase to discount the weightiness of the warning. He's in love with the present world and he's deserted Paul. One of the realities of life is that for some that we invest in, from some that we train, from some who are part of this church even now, we'll refuse to count the cost and we'll refuse to follow Christ till the end. We need that warning. We need that reminder. Not everyone will work out. But the next lesson is uh, almost its, its opposite. 
is that as part of this, we're also raising up the best and brightest. And part of the lesson that we need to be reminded of is that we must be willing to send our best and brightest young leaders. We must be willing to send our best and brightest young leaders. Paul mentions Crescens and Titus, and they're both on assignment and other reasons for the sake of the gospel mission in other regions. He talks about Tychicus, who has been sent to Ephesus. Timothy, remember, is the pastor in Ephesus as well. Paul has raised up other leaders and sent them out for the sake of the gospel in needy places. We invest in the next generation so that we might send them for the sake of the gospel where Jesus needs to be proclaimed. The hardest part about having a robust internship and residency program as part of our church is that we have to send them away. We love them, we resource them, we train them. They're part of our church family. We see them develop, we see growth, all for the sake that they would leave our church. What an investment program, right? But we're changing part of what, we're changing the math that we use there because we're not, just, we're not just talking about addition. We're talking about multiplication. We're sending out so that those leaders can go to other places, can go to needy areas that need the gospel so that the word might reverberate, that it might multiply in places that it is most needy. Gospel goodbyes are necessary for the sake of the mission. And part of our most valued relationships is that we would send out our best and brightest. Some of the names that I'll mention right now, many of you would know in our church. Pastor Bo Stanley is currently the pastor of Eastside, Eastside Grace. Pastor Dan Hermes is currently the pastor of Darby Grace in Plain City. Joel Zook is the pastor of Southview Grace up in Ashland, my home church. And we've sent dozens of global workers around the world. We've sent hundreds of members to other places and sometimes in good and bad circumstances as part of that as well. But yet we recognize that we must be training people so that we might send out. Because the value of life, the successful life, is measured in our relationships. And we must measure even those that we send. The next lesson we see from Paul here is that there are some teammates, though, that will remain with us until the end. There are some relationships that will remain with us almost indefinitely. And Paul mentions uh, Luke here, that Luke alone is with him. And Luke played a key role in the mission of the church and the building up of the church. And if we were to count it by just words written, total words written, Luke wrote most of the New Testament. In his two-volume set of the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts, Luke uh, had a, a big part in the early establishment of the church. We're thankful for him, but Luke and Paul had remained friends, had remained connected as teammates throughout. And we need those kinds of relationships in our lives too, don't we? Some of the, the healthiest relationships are the people that we've known for decades. Some of the healthiest friendships we have are those that we've been connected to forever. We need those kinds of relationships to help us walk in this world. I'm grateful for somebody who stopped me after first service and who was talking about the value of the relationships that he's had as part of our church in the midst of his difficulty and the family's difficulty and how people have prayed for him. If you're relatively new, we don't expect you to be all that connected right away. But if you've been part of Grace for any period of time, we hope that you're getting into places where you know people and that you are known because you cannot walk the Christian life alone. You must get connected. Look for ways. And we recognize part of the challenges of a larger church is that oftentimes it requires you to take the initiative in lots of places. 
If you're here as a regular member at Grace, look for people you don't recognize. Start a lot of conversations on Sunday mornings with, I don't think we've met. How long have you been coming to Grace? You'll likely meet somebody that you've been, who's been here as long as you have, and that's okay. That's a good thing too. You're also likely to meet somebody who's pretty new and needs to get connected. Go ahead and, and risk a little awkwardness in that kind of conversation. But we need people as part of our church who walk, us, walk with us faithfully. The final lesson that Paul gives us here is that there is hope for every wayward disciple. There's hope for every wayward disciple. In the second half of verse 11, he mentions Mark. Mark. Now, <clears throat> if you know the story about Mark, we'll know that Mark was the center of some controversy between Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 15. Paul and Barnabas were those who were called from the church. They were sent out from Antioch to go plant churches to make the gospel known among the Gentiles. And uh, Mark at some point was with them, but Mark, like Demas, uh, left Paul and Barnabas. He forsook them. He deserted them. What is written about Demas could just as well have been written about Mark. In love with this present world, he left. But yet Mark repented and he desired to go back. And Barnabas, the, the, the man of second chances, everybody needs a Barnabas in their life at some point. And he would say, I think we should take Mark. And, and Paul, the type A go-getter says, you know, fool me once, uh, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. He was kind of like, I'm not taking Mark. He's already deserted me. And those guys divided over this. Paul was, was adamant to say, no, Mark has nothing to do with gospel mission. But in Paul's final letters, in some of his final words, he says to Timothy, bring Mark. For he is useful to me in ministry. Fellow Christian, you may not feel useful in ministry in many places. You might think my, your past sins keep you out. You might think your lack of maturity means there's no place for you. You may think that part of the challenge is, you know, there can never be a place of service for me. I can never really be useful to the Lord. That's a lie. For you are useful in ministry. If you're repentant of sin... If your arms wide open, who says, Lord, I'm willing to be used however you ask, you can be useful in ministry. And Mark is that reminder that there is always hope for every wayward disciple. There's hope for Demas here. There's always hope. Paul mentions all these other names in ministry, uh, protégés and teammates. In verses 19 to 21, he talks of Prisca and Aquila. This house, the household of Onesiphorus, we were introduced to him earlier who had refreshed Paul, Erastus, Trophimus, Eububulus, Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers. Just for the sake of comment, if you don't know how to pronounce some uh, names in the Bible, just say it confidently because no one else knows how to pronounce them either. <laughs> but these men and women had been important to, to Paul in his ministry. They were teammates who helped further the gospel and build up the church. And think about the lessons that Paul would have wanted them to have. Do not be ashamed of the gospel and trust to others who will teach. Guard the good deposit, suffer as a good soldier, handle and live the word well, endure obstacles, proclaim the word, stay faithful. To all of these ministry teammates that Paul was leaving behind, they had a baton to pick up and to run with. Recently, I played the game of life with some of my kids and at the end of the game of life, you get to the end and you add up all of your money and you cash in all of your life tiles. And essentially, the person who has the most money wins. What a terrible game, by the way. 
Because the value of a life, the success of a life is not measured in dollars counted, but in relationships. Relationships, especially those who come after you. The interest rate on mentoring the next generation is impossible to calculate. The endowment of relationships will never run out. The trust fund of relationships is is endless. Relationships, brothers and sisters, will be the kind of thing that you count as part of your success. Who are you mentoring? Who are you building into? And who is walking with you as part of this Christian life? For success is in relationships. My grandmother used to say, People are more important than things. And no one should ever not listen to Janice Galloway. The next measure of a successful life is in being faithful to mission. A successful life is faithful to the mission. See, our relationships only matter if they're part of something bigger than us. If they're, part of, if they're receiving content that's worth, being, that's worth uh, passing on. The best and most important missions will outlive the lifetime of any one person. Most people want to live for something that's bigger than themselves. And especially young people, if you're hearing this today, I understand. I know that all of us are concerned about living for something that really matters. Living for something where my life will count. And the mission of Jesus Christ is where that mission matters. But all of us are connected to something like this. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. in one of in his final speech called I've been to the mountaintop speaks of a vision for something that what he knew would outlive them, outlive him. He says we have some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't matter to me now because I've been to the mountaintop. I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I know, but I want you to know tonight that we will get to the promised land. President George Washington, in his farewell speech, which is a remarkable sense, monumental aspect of American history, when he was forsaking prior to his death uh, the presidency for a third term. But he still speaks in that farewell address about the health of a young nation, his desire for unity, to, to get rid of factions, that we would see the young institutions of America that would be built up and established. Both of those men recognized that they were living for something bigger than themselves. But brothers and sisters, the gospel of Jesus Christ is bigger than either of those dreams too. To see the mission of Christ, to make disciples of all the nations, is worth investing all of our lives too. To see that we would proclaim the good news of Christ, that he is the salvation for anyone who would believe. That he, through his life, death, and resurrection, has been the substitute for sinners. And to see the church of Jesus Christ represent and model the kingdom of God. That is a mission worth giving ourselves to. We are successful in the fact that we are faithful to the mission. And how does Paul do that? Well, he does that in several ways. First, he does that through his writing. His writing. In verse 13, he says to Timothy, when you come, bring that cloak, I'm cold. But he says, also bring the books and above all, the parchments. Now, we're not exactly sure what those books and parchments were. There's no way of knowing definitively of what they were. But it very well could have been portions of the Old Testament. It could have been his kind of a journal where he would have kept notes. It it could have included uh, sermon manuscripts and notes. It could have included notes for other letters. It could have included a variety of things. But Paul wanted to spend his time in study. He wanted to spend his time writing. He wanted to run through the tape as he finished his race. And one of the ways he did that was through 
writing. He reminds me of, uh, of William Tyndale. If you know his story, he was uh, martyred for uh, translating the Bible into common English so that people could read it. And while he was awaiting his trial, while he was awaiting his death, he asked for somebody to bring a coat because he was cold. And he also asked for somebody to bring him a Hebrew dictionary so that he might spend the rest of his time translating the Old Testament into English. Anybody signing up for a Hebrew uh, dictionary while you're awaiting execution anytime soon? See, these guys were about mission. And one of the ways they did this was through writing. And let me apply this in a unique way. No one now is writing scripture. Let's just, the canon is closed. We have the word. But we need thoughtful Christian scholars who are advocating for scripture, who are teaching scripture, who are, who are clarifying it for us, who are, who are people who are thinking well in the academy and in, for the sake of others. We need people who are willing to spend their days writing, reading, and thinking for the rest of us. That is a way for people to contribute to mission. We all have various places to fill and we need to figure out how are we gifted? How are we wired? How can we be part of the mission that God has given us. We don't all serve in the same way, but we need people who are willing to serve according to their gifts. The next way that Paul served the mission, was faithful to the mission of the church, was through his warning. He was faithful through his warning. Paul warns Timothy of Alexander. Look at verse 14. He says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him, for he strongly opposed our message. Now, we're not exactly sure, again, who Alexander was, whether he's identified in other New Testament letters or not. But he, he had strongly opposed the message. And we're reminded of a couple of stories in Acts. In Acts 16, we see Lydia's conversion. Lydia was a slave girl who practiced divination. And she was in that process. She made money for her slave owners. So when she was converted to Christ, her slave owners, guess what? Notice that their pocketbook wasn't quite as full. We, we, hear, we read of Demetrius in Acts 19. Demetrius was a silversmith, similar to a coppersmith, but was a silversmith. And he spent, made most of his money through making shrines and idols. So as the gospel made an impact in his city, he started to notice, I'm not getting as wealthy here. Uh, and he strongly opposed the message and started a riot there in Ephesus because of what was going on with these missionaries. So Alexander could well have been somebody like Demetrius who was making idols. And because he was experiencing that kind of backlash, because he was experiencing a lack of wealth in his own business, he persecuted them. But we need people who are willing to warn. What warnings do we need to heed that we might stay faithful to the mission that God is calling us to. See, this, sometimes we're different in a church. We, we realize that some are quick to warn and everything around the corner might be something worth a warning or look out. This could be challenging. Others of us might be a little bit more laissez-faire and, and say, oh, it's not that big a deal. Things will be okay. And to, to paint some broad strokes generationally, I hear from a lot of older Christians who will say things like this. They'll say, you know, I'm nervous about the world that my kids and grandkids might live in. And, you know, you've seen, you have enough wisdom and you see some things and you're able to, to be a little bit concerned about the world that, that those who follow you will inhabit because you recognize these are challenges that maybe our society hasn't faced in the past. We need some of those warnings, but let me also remind you that your parents and grandparents probably had the same concerns about your generation. And let me remind you to, to in all of those warnings that you have, to don't ever let the warnings deny the sovereignty of God 
to build up his church regardless as to circumstances? Now, let me talk to younger Christians a little bit too, who oftentimes are, you know what, that's just mom and dad, it's just grandpa being a little old and senile. You know, like it, it, sometimes we can be a little bit quick to deny or, uh, the warnings. Brothers and sisters, younger Christians, we need, to, we need to listen to the wisdom that's gone before us. We need to have good conversations and to, to, to have legitimate conversations to wonder whether or not this is a, a warning we need to heed or whether or not this is a challenge that we might to have to face in the midst of our culture. But in any case, brothers and sisters, in the midst of whatever warnings that we need, in the midst of whatever warnings that are there before us, God is sovereign and the gates of hell will not prevail against this church. The last way that Paul was faithful to the mission we see here is that he was faithful through witness. Most importantly, he was faithful through witness. Paul talks about giving his defense and he was deserted by everyone, but the Lord stood by him and that he was able to make the gospel known and proclaim it to the, the Gentiles, to all that would hear. All of Paul's circumstances, both good and bad, were for the, the, the purpose of declaring the gospel. In 2 Timothy 2 verse 10, he says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10 that you will be delivered over to courts, you will be flogged in synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings and people in high positions. Why? To testify of my name. Paul had been faithful to witness to the good news of Christ, his death on the cross for sinners, regardless as to circumstances. And brothers and sisters, regardless as to our circumstances, regardless as to the challenges that we might face, we can endure everything for the sake of the elect. We can endure everything, even if we lose our freedom to proclaim. Guess what? That can't shut us up. Paul says elsewhere that, that he is bound, but the word of God is not bound. There are not enough chains in the, word, in the world to bound the word of God. We stay faithful through witness. We preach the word. We do the word of an evangelist. We hold on to the word because the word of God is able to make us wise unto salvation and it's able to transform our lives. We stay faithful to witness through the word. So a successful life is committed to mission. It outlasts any individual it's built on relationships. It's, it's, it's built on, on something bigger than us, but it's also empowered by Jesus. Our final criteria for a successful life is that a successful life is empowered by Jesus. We can easily gloss over these final sentences, but we shouldn't do that too quickly because these are, these are Paul's last sentences that he would ever write. We realize that, that presence often changes everything. The presence of a, of a team's best player after maybe a long injury can re re reinvigorate that team to be excited, to have confidence. Uh, when, when parents are trying to get a child to maybe do something a little difficult, to do something a little terrifying, they'll often say, don't worry, I'm right here. The presence of Christ with his people is what empowers all of us to a successful life, to empowers all of us to live and leave a gospel legacy. We see Paul re responding and reflecting on the Lord's presence. First, we see that the Lord's presence strengthens his people. In verse 17, he says, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. While everyone had abandoned Paul, Paul had not been abandoned by the Lord. The Lord stood by him and strengthened him. 
Earlier in chapter two, we say, Paul said, be strengthened by grace. The grace of Christ and his presence through his spirit will always strengthen his people. Brothers and sisters, in all of your lonely moments and all of your moments of difficulty, God will strengthen you. He promises to never leave or forsake. Next, the Lord's presence perseveres his people. The Lord's presence perseveres his people. In verse 18, Paul says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul had confidence that in the Lord, that God's grace not only saved him, but God's grace would keep him. Paul likens himself to Daniel in the lion's dead. And he says, as Daniel had been rescued, so too I will be rescued. But think about this. Paul is writing this almost on the eve of his death. Paul knows that that he may not be physically rescued from this given situation. But guess what? He says that I will still be brought safely into the heavenly kingdom of Christ. God's grace, God's presence will strengthen his people to persevere. Jesus says, do not kill or do not fear the one who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. He says, fear instead the one who can kill both body and soul in eternal hell. Paul is not facing an impending death with anything other than the certainty that he will walk directly into the presence of Christ. Which is why he can say in chapter 1, verse 12, For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Fellow Christian, do you have that kind of assurance in Christ? Can you recognize that, that the presence of Christ is able to persevere you in faith? That you, through Christ, will one day behold him as he is, regardless as to what happens in this world? He will persevere. You can have that kind of confidence. And finally, the Lord's presence will remain with his people. The Lord's presence will remain with his people. Paul's last recorded sentence, verse 22, the Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you. See, for many people in the world or many Christians as they pass on, There can be a concern about the next generation. There can be a concern about the health of the church. But brothers and sisters, we have no reason to be concerned about whether Christ will be present with his people through his spirit. Grace be with you. The Lord be with your spirit. Christ will continue to enable and provide and be present with all of his people until he returns or calls them home. Timothy and others may be concerned as the apostles pass on, but they have no reason to be concerned about whether or not Christ will be with them. Jesus has promised to never leave his people. He will never leave nor forsake. So Paul can say, the Lord be with your spirit. Even as Paul passes on, it will no longer be with them. The Lord will always be with his people. There is enough grace to go around. So a successful life treasures what's most important. As I was reflecting on this sermon uh, last night, just in in preparation or or just review, I thought, you know, I wonder if Timothy actually ever made it to Rome to see Paul. Did they ever get that final embrace? Did they ever get to see each other face to face again? Or is the letter of 2 Timothy all that Timothy received? And if that's, if that's it, then that's enough. 
Because Timothy had picked up on the things that Paul treasured most. He realized that successful life was to prioritize relationships. That it was to stay faithful to mission. That it was to be reminded the presence of Christ. That Jesus would empower this entire endeavor. And brothers and sisters, as we think about what we treasure most, what will people say you treasure most? Because there will come a day that all of us are in a casket. And our friends and loved ones will speak and talk about the things that were most important to us. Because it's not always the things that we say. It's not always the things that we're teaching. It's oftentimes the things that we're most passionate about. It's oftentimes the things that we most treasure. Those will be the kinds of things that people speak up at our funerals. What do you treasure? What is your criteria for success? And for our church, as we think embracing the gospel mission that we have to this next generation, what are we treasuring? Are we treasuring the right things? Are we embracing the best of what God has for us so we might be faithful to proclaim his name to this day? When Grace Blair's church turns 100 years old in 40 years, will they they say that we treasured the right things, that we were faithful to Christ his word, and to his mission. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize your sovereign majesty over all things. We recognize your providence and care. We see that you are making all things new. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would come quickly. But until then, until then, we pray that we would be found faithful that your word would never depart from our lips, that the good news of Christ would be the heartbeat of who we are, that we would teach and raise up and train the next generation so that they might take it, should you tarry. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the deep joy of our hearts as we treasure and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.